On this edition of the Iowa Business Report, Union officials and their political allies believe that union power and privilege is more important than individual freedom. We disagree, and I think most Americans do. On this Labor Day weekend, we'll talk about the influence of unions and the right-to-work movement in the U.S. How U.S. regulators are working to avoid further bank failures among regional lenders. And in our business profile, we'll revisit a company that just celebrated another physical plant expansion. This is the Iowa Business Report for Labor Day Weekend 2023. The Iowa Business Report is a copyrighted production of Totally Iowa Media, which is solely responsible for its content. For more, click on the radio programs button at totallyiowa.com. Here is Jeff Stein. Labor Day has been a national holiday since 1894 when President Grover Cleveland signed a bill to that effect into law. More than 60 countries around the world now celebrate a similar holiday. Working conditions and business are both far different now than when labor unions formed in the post-Civil War period. Today, there are concerns about forced union membership. Mark Mix is president of the National Right to Work Committee. He shares insight on today's labor movement and how all of it impacts business. There's one major difference between what unions were and what unions are. And let me just say this up front. There was a place for unionization. There is a place for unionization. And there will be a place for unionization. But there's no place for compulsion and force, Jeff. Frankly, union officials have relied on government privilege and power for too many years, too many decades. And that's really having an impact on how people perceive unions. Because, you know, if unions were attracting adherence to folks that supported volunteers, voluntary unionism and wanted unions to provide services to them, it would be a way different story than those going to government to get power to force people into these collectives. We know, and anyone who thinks about it logically understands that organizations that are brought together through voluntarism are inherently stronger than ones that are forced together through compulsion. And so union officials have this Labor Day to think about how they are attracting workers, not forcing them into collectives, but providing services they want and they're willing to buy and to invest in. So that's the difference, I think, where we were and where we are with unionization and what the way forward may look like. The concept of right to work, explain what that means at its most basic level and what laws do we have in place across the country on the topic? It's really very simple, and that's a good thing for me, Jeff, because if it was any more complicated, it'd be hard for me to understand. But look, we believe that every worker has the right to join and participate in a union if they choose to do so. But right-to-work laws in what are now 27 states, soon to be 26 because of actions that Michigan has taken to repeal their right-to-work law, protect workers from losing their job, losing their livelihood if they choose not to financially support a labor union. It's a really simple equation. None of the states that have right-to-work laws in place at this time stop anyone from joining a union, participating in a union, or being in a union if they choose to do so. But they won't contemplate, they will not allow workers to be fired from their job for failure to pay dues or fees. There has also been talk about federalizing the situation that would trump right-to-work laws in fully half of the states, more than half of the states. This is something that has been promoted primarily by Democrats uh, over the course of time with strong encouragement, I trust, by today's labor unions. 
Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. There's a bill pending in Congress right now called the PRO Act, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act. We find in Washington, D.C., bills get mistitled very often. The fact is there is a complete body of statutory protections for the right to organize in America uh, if you're organizing a union. But union officials and politicians that support them want us to believe that somehow this is not possible. So this PRO Act bill, the first thing it would do is repeal every right to work law in the country. That means Iowa's right to work law, Nebraska right to work law, Kansas's right to work law, Indiana's right to work law, South Dakota's right to work law, those states that surround the area that are hearing our voice today, those right to work laws would be repealed by federal fiat. They can take away the power of states to have right to work laws. And the PRO Act would do that, among many other things that would give union officials dramatic new powers over workers. It doesn't give workers any more rights or powers or privileges, but it gives union officials dramatic privileges. Unfortunately, there are 47 co-sponsors of that bill in the United States Senate today. There are 213 House members that have sponsored that bill in Congress. Good news is I think we've got it stopped legislatively, but that hasn't stopped the Biden administration from using the executive branch to dramatically increase union power over workers. How serious is the issue of coercive unionism? This is something that your organization and the legal defense arm of your organization, two separate groups, You are filing lawsuits. You are defending individuals. How serious a problem is it, though? Yeah, it's a really serious problem. When your livelihood's at stake and you have the Hobson's choice between protecting your ideological or philosophical rights versus your workplace rights, that's a choice that no worker should be faced with. In order to protect your political rights, for example, because we know union officials are very political. They are very much involved in the political process. And oftentimes they will support, endorse, and financially support candidates who the so-called rank and file workers that they represent don't support. And that's one of the major injustices of So at any given time, we're litigating anywhere from 200 to 250 cases on behalf of individual and sometimes groups of employees that want to protect their rights in the workplace. And the result here, Jeff, is very simple. If you don't pay in a state that doesn't have a right to work law, you lose your job you lose your livelihood. So it's very serious for those workers. And unfortunately, we still have to litigate these cases to protect workers in the American workplace. You know, in this grand experiment of self-government, we take away the First Amendment rights of private sector workers when we force them to join or support a private organization they disagree with, never asked for, and never wanted. So it's very, very serious. And this is one of the problems because those who are supporting the unions, the unions themselves, they are well-funded. They've been down this road a time or two. If you are the one individual who wants to challenge it, you've already discussed the choice that you have to make between raising a stink and keeping your job. But financially, it is difficult to file the lawsuit to challenge these things because you're certainly pushing a large rock up a hill as a single individual or even a cluster of three, four or five employees at one operation. Yeah, Jeff, that's a great point. I mean, big labor has their attorneys, big business have their attorneys. The only part of that equation that doesn't have legal representation and perhaps the means to litigate these types of issues are the employees. And frankly, you know, the way you read the flowery language of the National Labor Relations Act, the the Section 7 preamble, it says that workers should have the right to join and participate for mutual aid and bargaining. And they also should have the right to deny that or to reject that if they want to refrain from it. But yet 
the idea of actually working that process and paying a lawyer to do that work over what are, and I won't say it's not material, but for example, you're fighting over maybe $50 a month in union dues or fees. And so when you call an attorney and say, well, we're going to have need a $5,000 retainer to litigate this case, it makes it unworkable. And that's why the Legal Defense Foundation has been around since 1968, helping employees exercise their rights in the workplace and doing and providing that free legal services to them. I mean, we've gone to the U.S. Supreme Court 18 times on behalf of individual employees and groups of employees, and we'll continue to do that. But the injustice there that you point out is significant. The idea of actually raising a stink to protect your First Amendment rights or whatever rights you're trying to protect and having to litigate that at your own cost is something that many, many, many workers can't do. Big business really doesn't care in many instances. You know, some of the largest corporations in America are very happy sitting down with a union official every three to four years and say, hey, here's what we're going to give everybody. You know, nobody gets special. Nobody who does great work gets more. Nobody does poor work gets punished. We'll just do it all for everybody. But in a small business, to your point, Jeff, that's where it really makes a difference. And if you talk to individual workers about unionization, what you find is, is it creates confrontation. And generally, labor policy is a confrontational model. They think of it as a zero-sum game often. Union officials do. And their rhetoric is very, very, it's very apparent they think of it that way. When, you know, you have a Teamster union boss who says, we've organized and we've mobilized, now it's time to pulverize in talking about the, the potential strike at UPS. And, you know, that type of language, that confrontational language is something that can destroy kind of the culture in a small business and pit friends and neighbors against each other in their views of unionization and how it's going to work and what it's going to look like for them as individuals. So it is devastating in that case. It works. No question it works. But when you insert a third party, a private third party in between employees and employers, and you you negotiate in what one side continues to be a, a zero-sum game, perhaps two sides think it's a zero-sum game, that's when it creates controversy. And, and you know, that's why a lot of small businesses fight very hard and, and their job is to take care of their employees. And if they do that, they don't really have a problem. And let's put this in perspective, Jeff. Only six percent of the private sector workforce in America is unionized today. It's going down. It's not going up. It's going down because employers are indeed taking care of their employees. And that's the secret. You take care of their employees. They will take care of you. That model works. Union officials don't like that. They want to inject themselves in most instances into this and kind of create that controversy and that conflict and that confrontation. And it does hurt the smallest of our businesses across the country. And this move toward forced unionization away from right to work, this has ramifications for freelancers. I assume it also has ramifications for flexibility. In the COVID environment, people were being very flexible. They were being imaginative about things. And I have a feeling that that doesn't square well with one-size-fits-all contracts. Yeah, absolutely. You're Again, you're ahead of the news because the Department of Labor and the National Labor Relations Board, uh, two agencies in the federal government back here, are talking about that redefinition of independent contractors, Jeff. Here's the secret, and don't tell anyone this, but unions can't organize and unionize independent contractors, but they can organize and unionize employees. And so the union officials here in Washington, D.C. are pushing the Department of Labor to reclassify someone and say, you can't be an independent 
independent contractor, you have to be an employee. And we saw the the beginnings of this out in California several years ago when they passed this bill called Assembly Bill 5, which was designed to capture Uber drivers, Lyft drivers. It even captured owner-operator truck drivers and said, hey, you're going to be employees because we want to unionize you. You can't be independent contractors that set your own schedules, decide who you pick up, who you drop off, when you work, when you don't work. I mean, those things that have kind of given people the some flexibility to to have a side hustle, if you will, or, you know, those gig employees we talk about, you know, musicians who play on weekends or photographers who do weddings. Those are the people they're after because they can't be unionized. They want them to be employees for purposes of unionization. And obviously there may be injustices out there, but the bottom line is this, that this kind of one size fits all approach by the union officials here in Washington, D.C. and the administration is designed to do one thing, give union officials more power over those types of workers. Mark Mix, president of the National Right to Work Committee, online at nrtw.org. We connected via Zoom on Wednesday, August 30th. Still to come, avoiding bank failure. And later, a longtime business expands again in Cedar Rapids. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report. You asked, the City of Waterloo answered. This fall, high-speed internet is coming to a Waterloo neighborhood near you. Waterloo Fiber, as it's called, is a voter-approved, locally-owned and operated utility. So no hidden fees, no profit-driven models, just fast and reliable internet service for a fixed price with local customer service. For more information, go to waterloofiber.com to sign up today so you can be notified when the service is available, again, only for Waterloo residents. The Iowa Business Report is presented by Advanced Peer Groups, hosting informational meetings about their fall launch of peer sessions in the Cedar Valley on Wednesday, September 20th. To register or to get more information, go to AdvanceIowa.com. Federal regulators are somewhat quietly demanding that regional lenders shore up their liquidity planning. Part of their increased efforts to tighten supervision in the wake of three bank failures in the U.S. earlier this year. The Federal Reserve has issued several private warnings to lenders with assets of $100 billion to $250 billion. This includes Citizens Financial Group, Fifth Third Bank Corp., and M&T Bank Corp. The warnings deal with capital and liquidity, technology, and compliance. These warnings come as regulators look for signs of stress in the system, which was already shaken by the failures of First Republic Bank, Silicon Valley Bank, and Signature Bank. The regulatory efforts are focusing on so-called Category 4 banks, which are in the same size range as the three that failed earlier this year. Now again, analysts say they don't recall a prior time with such focus on deposits, liquidity, and funding risk. Coming up, rising... To the top of the field, you're listening to the Iowa Business Report. In football, every win counts. That's why the Cyclone and Hawkeye football teams rely on cleaner-burning biodiesel to power their game day buses. Made from soybeans grown right here in Iowa, biodiesel is helping to power college athletics, enhance our environment, and support Iowa farmers. This message was brought to you by the Iowa Soybean Association, driven to deliver for Iowa's 40,000 soybean farmers. Visit IASoybeans.com to learn more about biodiesel's impact on football and the farmers who make it possible. 
Support for the Iowa Business Report comes from the Iowa Business Council, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization working to elevate Iowa's economy through leadership, research, and advocacy. Learn more and review the latest quarterly member survey by going to iowabusinesscouncil.org. A ribbon-cutting ceremony was held this past Thursday at Red Star Yeast in Cedar Rapids, celebrating a new fermenter there. The Red Star facility in Cedar Rapids is among the largest and most modern yeast facilities in the world. That reminded us of when our business profile focused on Red Star Yeast, And as we learned in May 2020 from Elena Decker of Red Star in Cedar Rapids, it's a product with a century-long history nationally, but which became an Iowa-based operation relatively recently. Red Star Yeast actually started in 1882, so about 138 years ago. In 2001, the Lasoff Group, which is a privately owned family company and the world's leader in the science of yeast, actually acquired Red Star Yeast from Sensient Technologies. Shortly after that, Lasoff entered into a joint venture with ADM to create what we now know as Red Star Yeast Company. Together, they opened up the Cedar Rapids, Iowa facility in 2006. So many people know us, obviously, from the baking industry in regards to being a yeast producer, but we actually make several other ingredients that are utilized for baking. In addition, we make products for animal and human nutrition, for the ethanol industry, and also culinary flavors, such as yeast extracts used for flavorings in snacks. Overall, Red Star is in some way or another actually linked to 40% of the U.S. bread supply. So especially now during the crisis, we are considered an essential business. And so we want to make sure that we're able to do our part to meet the food supply requirements. So this is obviously a name that is very well known that has gone through a number of changes and it has evolved over the course of time. What was it about Cedar Rapids that made it attractive for the company to put down roots and reestablish that name here? So it was very important for Red Star when they were looking to build the new facility to have a central location and a close proximity to our joint venture partner, ADM. So Iowa is a very good location because of our ability to produce and ship coast to coast in the U.S. and also into Canada. And then, of course, there is the ADM facility located in Cedar Rapids that, as our joint venture partner, is able to supply us with corn syrup, which we use to grow the yeast. Obviously, centrally located helps, but what is there also perhaps about the climate in the state of Iowa in terms of workforce, in terms of affordability? Because obviously, you could go somewhere in Missouri and be just about as centrally located. So what is it about Iowa, in addition to the connection directly with ADM, that makes this a good place for this business to literally grow? As I'm sure you know, Cedar Rapids is a factory town. And so there is excellent community support and local government support for food manufacturing. The workforce environment in Iowa is very favorable to meet our needs. And I may be biased being from the area, but Iowa Nice is a real thing. And so the people are great and you have a very strong work ethic that comes with that. There are some challenges, I suppose, because again, you're not in a major metropolitan area. What are some of the things that you have to deal with in trying to get the product where it needs to be that potentially, if you were in a place like a St. Louis or a Kansas City, might not be front of mind? One thing that comes to mind as a challenge would be, you know, the economy in Iowa is very strong. 
So sometimes available workforce can be difficult to secure, you know, as expansions occur and growth occurs. So ongoing work with local officials to kind of bring qualified employees to the area to support those job functions is something that we're always working towards. That is not uncommon that we hear the number one challenge is developing a good workforce. Has it hampered your ability to meet your full potential as a company? The fact that you can put a help wanted sign in the window at least prior to the pandemic, and you just couldn't find enough people. We were actually fortunate that in December of last year, Red Star was actually voted to be the number one best place to work out of the top 15 factories located in Cedar Rapids. That was based on employee ratings on Indeed.com. So, you know, it's important that the community and, and our employees believe that it's a good place to work and can help refer their friends or family members to come work for us. You've mentioned that the Cedar Rapids area has this tradition with regard to manufacturing, with regard to food preparation. What is it about the company that you work for that uniquely places you, that places Red Star in this, if you will, history that goes back so long within Cedar Rapids, your historic company within now this historic channel of Cedar Rapids and Eastern Iowa? Since the addition of the Red Star facility to the Cedar Rapids area in 2006, the company's made additional investments um, with the addition of a yeast extract facility in 2010, a pilot lab in 2016, and the last addition of a blending facility in 2018. So we've definitely expanded the site, um, and we feel that we're you know a big site but small enough that everybody knows each other, and there are still opportunities on site for growth. Elena Decker is with Red Star Yeast in Cedar Rapids. More online at redstaryeast.com. We originally connected via Zoom in May 2020. And that brings us to the close of this week's program. We're back again next week at this same time. In the meantime, you can listen to all or part of today's program by going to totallyiowa.com and clicking on the radio programs link. That's where you'll find podcasts of full interviews with many of the folks you hear on this program. They're listed as IBR Extras and IBR Business Profiles. And we're also found on all the major podcast distributors, 18 now in all. The Iowa Business Report is presented by Advance Iowa, providing business solutions and support to small to medium-sized businesses. Let's work together. More at AdvanceIowa.com and search for Advance Iowa on LinkedIn and Facebook. We welcome your comments. Send them by email to radio at totallyiowa.com. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a prosperous week. The Iowa Business Report is a copyrighted production of Totally Iowa Media, which is solely responsible for its content. For more, click on the radio programs button at totallyiowa.com.